As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Show and our latest dive into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're learning about the history of the Derby. We're finding out how many seats are on the plane to Qatar, and we're quantum leaping into Greg Berhalter's body for the sake of humanity. That'll be fun. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining <laughs> me today, we have a man who's still a little down about the USMNT's performance against Newcastle United's parent club. You okay, Taylor Rockwell? A lot down, my friend. A lot down. Yeah, it was uh, It was not my favorite game that the U.S. has ever played, and it was one, I said this on Twitter, it stuck with me for a while. It still sort of is. It's been a while since a game like truly impacted my mood, but there I was doing dishes and muttering into the soap bubbles about uh, overlapping runs and lack of possession or attacking possession. Not my favorite game overall. I can't understand a world where people get emotional about friendlies. I'm sorry, I can't do it, Taylor. Yeah, and that's fair, and I think very justifiable and normally correct. It's just that this wasn't just a friendly, it was the final friendlies before the World Cup, and for us to have come out of that one hoping to have some solid answers, and instead, kind of the only answers we have are, this might go poorly, I don't really know what to make of it, I have a lot of questions, I think we just came away having more questions than answers, and that was not what we were hoping for, certainly not ideal leading into a World Cup. Indeed. See the previous episode on the feed, listener, if you haven't already. Joining us, Taylor, a man who may also have the World Cup Group B sads like you and me, Taylor. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Ryan. I just went and ate about a, a box or two. I think it ended up being two boxes of Hot Pockets yesterday after I stopped recording with Taylor and Graham. And and you'll be surprised to know that did not make me feel better. So here I am. I am a little bit down. Ryan, we're not bummed. I, I guess we, we can be bummed about friendlies. But how much more so should you be bummed about the Nations League? You know, that's sort of just the question I keep coming back to. Uh, I'll I'll stop talking and leave it to you to parse through that. Yes, Joe, you've always been my favorite. The Nations what? (laughs) Uh, Joining us, uh, you just heard his voice there. Um, Someone who is very invested all of a sudden in the UEFA Nations League, Graham Ruthman, hello. Hello, I'm just basking in the glory of League A. I couldn't imagine being the fan of a team that isn't in League A. That that must be a weird (laughs) feeling. Ryan Bailey, can, can you maybe tell us what that's like? 
Do you have a nosebleed right now from being so high up the tables? <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a nosebleed every Wednesday. You know, that's routine for me, but uh, I don't think it's related to the football. We are just enjoying ourselves right now, Graham, Ryan. I... Just let us have that. All right. Graham, I know you're not this this used to being this close to the sun now that you're so high up in the standings. Just remember, sunblock for your people. Sunblock, very important for the Scots. <laughs> yeah, I keep on catching myself thinking, should I stop gloating? And then I think... No, no, I, no. I, I'm going to continue gloating. No. I don't get many opportunities yeah. to do this. This will come around, back around and bite me at some Savagely. point, but I'm going to enjoy it right now. Graham, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have this one. You're very welcome to it, because as you say, these chances are fleeting for Is the that what Gareth Southgate said to all of the opposition England have played recently? Oh. I'm going to let you have this one. Huh? Oh. <laughs> Come on. Hey, now of, I feel better. By the way, now I feel better. If we're going to be, I, I, I'm going to suggest that many, many World Cup teams or teams going into the World Cup mm-hmm. are not feeling good right now, and they have reasons to not feel good. So there's kind of a level play, playing field in that respect. But I did notice Taylor uh, on on the Twitters that mm-hmm. um, Michael Sheen has given his speech, his famous like rousing speech for the Welsh team. He's done it in person now. Um, and obviously the US's next opponent is Wales. So we should all be worried about Wales, of course, in Group B. Didn't he give that speech before they lost? <laughs> yes, he gave it before they lost to Belgium. And I think he should have given it maybe on the eve of the tournament when the yeah. Wales could have retained it rather than Jump going the back gun. to their relative clubs. Yeah, A little bit, maybe a little, a little bit. bit. But, hey, Content, Joe. Content is what it's all D- about. Diminishing returns, though, for sure. If he keeps giving that, that same speech over and over again, eventually he's just the crazy guy who keeps showing up at Wales games to make that announcement. <laughs> I did think it was interesting, though, that Wales have booked him to do their pre-match talks. The USMNT have managed to uh, lock down Eeyore. Eeyore will be doing the USMNT team talks. I might have a kid. That might be factoring into that. <laughs> Big Taylor, thistle that was guy. going to be my follow-up question. If the- yeah. If the US were to book someone to do the Michael Sheen role, the rousing speech. The Rock. Yep. It's The Rock. That's the it's answer. The rock. Mm-hmm. I did go, st- it was either The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin, but I think The Rock has that that uh, expedited cadence near the end that you need to really get things going. Uh, and if nothing else, he is now basically a human statue with his size. So I think he can intimidate opposition on top. Um, can he play support- center back? Does he play center back or <laughs> no? Okay, no, I got it. Give, give him like two weeks. I feel like he could probably pull it off. Yeah, Deal. He could pull off anything. Uh, awkward phrasing. Um, Al Pacino, <laughs> Taylor. Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, th- I think like basically you just use the any given Sunday speech, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Even if that's about uh, American football, and I don't know he would change that much, and he may never have actually seen a soccer game. He could still probably get it done, though there would be – Weird non sequiturs in there based on whatever substances might happen to be laying around when Al Pacino yeah. uh, preps to give that speech. Well, how about Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise could do a good job. Nah, he? we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you sons of Top Gun, you gods of Scientology. He'd be, be, be exactly. loving it, wouldn't he? Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's lots of people who could give some pretty pretty rousing speeches overall. But yeah, strange that they've gone for Eeyore with all of those many options out there. Indeed, strange but true. Uh, we've got many listener questions to get through today. I wanted to uh, just give a quick one off the top, gents, from Robert Sponge, who has not really offered a question but a challenge to us, which I, I had to get my head around a little bit. Uh, Robert says, um, if England tops the group, Ryan has to do a shoey. If the US tops the group, Joe and Taylor have to do a shoey. If Iran or Wales top the group, Graham has to do a shoey. Uh, obviously, Iran this would want. need to be recorded yep. and posted for proof, says Robert. I had to look up, Graham, what a shoey was. Are you aware of what it is? So that's the thing Daniel Ricardo does, right? 
where yes. he, whenever he wins a Grand Prix, which hmm, he's not winning many Grand Prix at the moment, but there was a time in his career when he was a successful F1 driver. Sick racing burn, races. Graham. Ooh. Got him. Got nice. Him. <laughs> well, uh, Ricardo, uh, Ricardo is um, Australian, Joe, and this is, sounds like the most Australian activity you can yeah, possibly do. It does, do. yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really does. Yeah. So basically, for anyone who hasn't seen this, you 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 down a, a drink, I, I, I presume an alcoholic drink, out of your shoe. That is the forfeit, essentially. I just yeah. don't. How do we feel I about don't, this? I don't feel good about it. I don't want to drink I mean, out of shoes. Like that's. I don't care about what the beverage is in particular. I just don't care to drink. It, does it have to be my shoe? Can it be a new shoe? Yeah, what I'm, are the rules of the that shoe? That was my here? question. Is there a designated shoe, or is it one of Rowan's shoes? I don't want it to be one of Ryan's running shoes. <laughs> I don't want it to be the shoe that I walked to wherever I'm going in and yeah. had to leave in that shoe. Smart. I, yeah, it's, there's a lot of questions. I think yeah. I don't want to do it. I, I, a, a couple of weeks ago, I would have felt pretty good about this, but with England and the USMNT seemingly uh, in free fall, this makes me a little bit nervous that my two teams are Iran and Wales. Um. I, I have to believe that this originates from the Germans drinking out of, like, the glass boot. And I'm choosing to believe that there was a German tourist who was showing off and drinking out of the, the glass boot. And if this is truly an Australian tradition, an Aussie guy was just like, oh, yeah, I could do that, too. And they just pulled off his shoe and away he went. So in the spirit of that, no, I don't want to drink out of uh, the, the shoe boot. Maybe a glass boot. I could handle that one. I, I guess if we're doing, like, a brand new shoe that hasn't really been worn, maybe I could go that way. Uh, Taylor, you, you'll know it's not a German tradition. It is Australian. If you've seen this instance, you know it's the highest punishment they can hand out in the yeah. court. Is it that big boot? Is yeah, that the that boot we're boot. drinking out of? Yeah. Crocodile Dundee will boot you um, with the boot. Yeah. <laughs> I see you've played Knifey Spoonie before, right? <laughs> Bay A. Live show coming up, guys. We've got a live show. Very exciting. <laughs> November 20th at 8 Eastern in New York City. Well, specifically Brooklyn. Littlefield, Brooklyn. $25. Come and see us, guys. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Who knows, Graham? Maybe one of us will do a shoey. <laughs> I was going to say, is a shoey in- included in that price? Or is that? An, uh, are we upselling that? Sounds like you just made a promise, Graham. Graham promises Uh-oh. to do a shoey if we sell out that show. Thanks, Graham. Right there. That is there we that's go. so Thanks, nice Graham. of you. Wow. All right. I've already oh, promised about 10 different people on Twitter that I'm going to wear Uh-oh. specific shirts, including Joe thinks I'm going to wear that awful uh, USMNT home shirt. So I feel like I'm now making promises I can't deliver on. You asked for suggestions and I gave you one. I don't know what more you want from me, Graham. That's true. That's on me. <laughs> Well, Graham, I'm with you. If we sell out that show, I will also do a shoey on stage at that show. Oh, God. And I will be the guy videoing because Robert says it has to be videoed. So I'm doing an important job in this whole experiment. You're welcome, guys, and you're welcome, Robert. Oh, dear. Taylor, what are you doing? You're standing around. That's a Donnie Darko quote. Taylor, what are you uh, doing? I'm the assistant director, Joe. I'm just, oh. you know, hanging out, making sure that you get all the right <laughs> angles and everything. We can't just have right. one person uh, acting as videographer. Yeah, all I right. mean, I, okay. I can't operate my phone by myself, so it would be great what, if you could help. What are we drinking out of the shoe, Ryan? Are we going to go up to the bar and ask for a Manhattan and just plonk our shoe down on the top of the bar in that <laughs> fill place of Manhattan in, in, in this? I assume, Graham, we fill up our size 10s with Jägermeister. <laughs> okay, oh. I'm, that, I'm actually in for that. <laughs> oh, God. I swear I swear, everybody, the, like, the first thing that everybody gets like violently ill slash drunk off of, they cannot drink again. And for me, that is Jaeger. I cannot smell Jaeger without getting instantly nauseated. So I look forward to the two of you 
downing entire boots of it. That should go well for everyone <laughs> All right. involved. That's even more for folks yeah. to look forward to at the live show. New York, once yeah. again, we'll put the link in the show notes if you would like to uh, get a ticket or two to come and hang out with us on November 20th. We're drinking out of shoes. What's yeah. not to love? And we're doing great, guys. We're doing yeah. great selling the, this one. The after part is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sparkling banter like this, guys, and much more, do uh, come and see us in New York on the eve of the opening game of the World Cup. Let's get to listen to questions. Ryan Hawkins has been in touch. In addition to the 26-man roster, is there any reason Greg Berhalter couldn't fill some more seats on the plane with players that contributed to the qualification process? Is there any precedent for such a thing? Uh, Taylor, your thoughts on this one? Obviously, we know it's a 26-man squad up from 23 in previous tournaments, but um, the merits of uh, packing out the plane for moral support, I guess? Yeah, I'm not sure there are that many merits. I look forward to everybody else's answers because I may well be wrong with this one. Because the only thing I could remember, I couldn't find much uh, in my Google searches about player, uh, coaches bringing players who didn't make the cut with them. Uh, Fabio Capello took David Beckham with him yeah. in 2010 after he ruptured his Achilles. That was sort of an unofficial coaching position. That aside, I don't think it happens very often. And I think a large part of that is because you don't really want people hanging around who aren't playing, who aren't training, and are kind of only there to basically have fun. You could see that as being locker room guys. You could see that as like helping team morale. But ultimately, I think those guys are going to get bored, maybe cause some problems, or just help the team not have the focus they would need. And so I think for the most part, coaches are trying to keep things very streamlined, very focused. You tend to have teams in seclusion. They don't even have their families around because you want them hyper-focused on the task at hand. And I'm not sure having players who aren't playing would uh, help accomplish that goal. Yeah, and I think psychologically, Taylor, it probably doesn't help the players who are coming who are outside the 26 and maybe in the 26 as well. If their buddies are on the plane and they know they're not playing, that probably doesn't help the situation. Yeah, I don't think so. Because, I mean, I, I think about that, like, I get where that would be a pleasant idea in theory. But for the most part, if you're that player who's going, you know you're not playing. And so even if you are sort of part of the group, you're not really. Are you going to be in the locker room? Are you going to be there at training? I, I doubt it. So I, I think it just sort of ends up creating a reminder of, yeah, you guys weren't quite good enough. Uh, sorry for that. I think if they ever made it so that you could bring in alternates, then maybe that would make more sense. But that opens up a whole different can of worms. So I think for now I'm okay with it just being uh, the squad and the staff. Yeah, I think the idea of it being 26 accounts for alternates, kind of, uh, by its very nature. Uh, Graham, Taylor mentioned David Beckham as an example of a, a, of a surplus on the plane. Um, there's also some upcoming precedent uh, of some dead weights and players who won't contribute on the England plane. Harry Maguire is probably going to be going to Qatar as well. <laughs> uh, any other examples? I think most England fans wish that Harry Maguire was going to be a deadweight in that squad. That would be a more effective use of his skill set, I think. Um, as far as I could see, there's nothing to stop a manager from taking additional players to a World Cup. The only thing is it wouldn't be in an official capacity. So one thing I did find in the World Cup rulebook, the FIFA World Cup rulebook, was there was a reference to registration for training. So my takeaway from that is if you're taking additional players outside that that 26-man squad, then not only would they not be able to take part in matches, they also wouldn't be able to take part in training because you have insurance and registration issues there. So basically you are just taking them along for cheerleaders. And I think logistic, uh, logistically there, there could be 
some issues as well. So normally FIFA helps national associations book hotel rooms and facilities for World Cups, but they'll only do that for a certain number of players and staff. And for most World Cups, that maybe wouldn't be much of an issue because I'm sure a national association could find some extra rooms for some additional players if they wanted. But for Qatar... And we keep coming back to this issue for Qatar, but I am growing in my fear this is going to be a defining issue of this tournament. There isn't uh, accommodation readily available. And I was reading this morning that the partners of the England players were given a briefing by the FA on on Monday about Qatar. And they were told that in some instances, there's not going to be accommodation for them in the country. And instead, they'll have to stay, stay in Dubai and fly into Doha for matches. Those are millionaires with the support of a national association. So that, that tells you just how difficult it is to find rooms at this World Cup. Uh, so I'm not convinced that Malik Tillman or Johnny Cardoso would even get a room on one of those cruise ships at, uh, at this World Cup. So that's another consideration. Yeah. Uh, well, at least most... Um top top five European players uh, are very well acquainted with Dubai, Graham. They have that on their Indeed. side. Second Indeed. Second home. Yeah, second home. Joe, uh, any more to add to this one? Um, I, I can't imagine as much more to cover here. I, I will move Earth to get Christian Roldan as the 27th player on the plane for the U.S. men's national team. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Wonderful stuff. Thank you, Ryan, for that question. Let's go to Alan Underwood, who says, you have quantum leaped into Greg Berhalter's body in Qatar. Ooh, Uh-oh. feels comfy. Yeah. Mm, how are we feeling? This I feels like a sponsored uh, like tie-in, even though it is not, because apparently they're rebooting that one. Uh, I could not pass harder on a show. But yeah, quantum leap back. Who knew? Oh, I hope it's as good as the Knight Rider reboot. That was great. <laughs> mm. I like night boat. I'm a night boat man myself. <laughs> There's always a river or a quarter. <laughs> anyway, uh, I continue with Alan's question. The future of humanity depends on you winning the World Cup as you are. We are screwed. We are screwed. Yeah. We are screwed. <laughs> Worry not, says Alan, however. Bill and Ted, another movie, have loaned you their time machine to go back in time and grab any five USMNT players in their prime to help you get over the line. Who do you get? Who's your starting 11? And do you end up saving the world? Mm. Five players, Joe. Why don't we start off there? Okay, we'll start there and then I'll, I'll leave everyone on, a, on a, a suspenseful note as to whether or not I'm going to save the world. Um, so I, I went through and identified positions of need, right, that the U.S. men's national team has. Because I think a lot of the best players from the past, or at least you know some, some names that are arguably towards the top of that list do fit positions that the U.S. needs right now. So I started, and I did this before the U.S. game yesterday, and I think it all still holds up today. The striker spot, I think, is very much still in need. Josie Altidore was my pick for that particular spot. I don't know that he's the best U.S. striker ever, but in his prime, man, Josie could do a lot of really valuable things. And I think he he, he can check Baralter's boxes and also still do a lot of really nice goal-scoring-y kind of things. So Josie when was Altidore his prime, was... Uh, I don't know. I think maybe early twenty ten, early to mid twenty tens. Taylor's that about fair? Maybe maybe mid twenty tens. Whenever he was at AZ, I think is okay. is the period that I will forever. Not just because he was scoring buckets of goals, but just because he seemed like he was rounding into form with the national team. Seemed like he yeah. had put it together to be a target striker, but also a really good mobile striker yeah, and exactly. a good goal scorer on top. There, so I guess there was a, there was a year yeah. for for the US where I followed the US and it was before the 2014 World Cup. So it must have been 2013 where it felt like he was scoring in basically every game for the national team. 2011 to 2013. There you go. So Josie is my first pick. or I mean, these aren't really in any order, but that's my striker option. Center back, I went Eddie Pope because I, I just really like Eddie Pope's game. I think he, he would certainly help this team. He gives them depth, has some mobility, is also a nice physical presence in the back. I like the idea of Eddie Pope on this squad. Then third, I have Demarcus Beasley. Now, I know in his prime, 
DeMarcus Beasley was not really a left back, but he could be a left back. And given how that position has sort of changed over time and how Greg Berhalter uses it, or how I use it, I guess, in Greg Berhalter's body, I'm not sure how much freedom I have to make changes here. I, I love the idea of Beasley being a left back in this team, providing width on the on the left side, and giving the U.S. just another option in that spot, because after this camp, it's pretty clear that they still need to sort out exactly what that looks like. Um, for central midfield depth, I'm bringing in Claudio Reyna, because, again, I like Claudio Reyna, and I can do whatever I want in this question. Very skilled on the ball, I think could <laughs> add some some really nice qualities. And you'd get Claudio and Gio, if if I can find the right hamstring to give Gio, playing together, which I think could be fun. And then I, I went for a wild card pick. So striker, center back, left back, central midfield option, and wild card. My wild card is Clint Dempsey, because if you say the word wild card in a conversation around the U.S. men's national team and you don't mention Clint Dempsey, I think maybe you have erred. So those are my five players. Uh, and I'm really sorry to say it, we're still not saving the world. Everyone, I'm, it's over. Because even with those players, the U.S. is still not as good as like a dozen teams in the World Cup. Maybe eight, at least eight, oh. but probably more than that. Well, that's disappointing. You quantum leaped for no reason at all, it seems, Joe. I mean, I think um, Alan quantum leaped some... me, but either way, oh, that's true. yes, it's true. Yeah. Also, sometimes it's the friends we made along the way and the journey yeah. we undertook, Ryan. That's what's important that's as the world true. explodes, apparently, in this scenario. Now, I would say, uh, Joe, that you haven't read the question to its full extent. Bill and Ted have loaned you their time machine. I, I th- maybe it was Rufus's time machine, technically. But either way, you have their time machine. Why don't you go back to, say, July 2000, take Erling Haaland's mother from the UK <laughs> to the USA, drop her there in the phone box, in Rufus's phone box, and then you've got a, you know, a domestic US player in Erling Haaland as well. That legitimately could change the calculation. I think Erling Holland is good enough to the point where he actually gives teams the chance to win the World Cup that otherwise would not have the chance. Ryan, you're right. I thought way too small here. Let's get Erling Holland in red, white, in a, in a different, I guess, white shirt or red shirt than he would wear with Norway. All right. It, this reminds me, I, a show that I'm absolutely down to do if, if uh, my other co-hosts are interested. We, we talked about this many years ago, doing one in which we each take I think control of what there's 32 teams at this World Cup, so we each get eight teams, and we do a draft where each team that is qualified gets to pick one non-qualified player to make them better, and then we see who gets picked and where. Because yeah, I think Erling Haaland would be the number one pick for a lot of different national teams if they could get him. We have to yeah. do that show, Taylor. That is like you've just combined <laughs> my addiction, my past addiction to fantasy football with this, with yep. soccer, the stuff that I actually like now. Um, please, yes, please, can we? Can we please? <laughs> All right. We can. All right, Joe, we'll do it. All right, if you're good. Back to Alan's question. (laughs) Taylor, where you at? Uh, I went a completely different route than Joe in the sense that I only have four of the five players he named. Uh, I, too, had Josie (laughs) Altador for exactly what Joe said. But just emphasizing, I think... Myself included, it's easy sometimes to remember him as like just being this big physical specimen. And that really wasn't what he was about. If you go back to the Giovinco era, it was Giovinco making the runs in behind. It was Josie Asador who was holding the ball and then playing him through. And that was a really good relationship. And I think that could help the U.S. So I would have Josie Asador in there. I also had Eddie Pope as one of my center backs. I chose two center backs. Uh, I had Demarcus Beasley as my left back slash left winger. I had Clint Dempsey as a striker, winger, X-factor. The only difference for me, I like the midfield as it is, especially when Eunice Musa comes back. So instead of Claudia Reyna, I had Carlos Bocanegra, uh, a, a left-footed left center back who can also give us left-back coverage, but has the 
the severity I think this team has lacked. I, I didn't get a lot of tomfoolery vibes from Carlos Bocanegra as a player, nor as a director at Atlanta United, though the, the less said about that, the better maybe presently. But as a player, I think he was a great leader. He brought a ton of experience. He brought uh, some steel to that team. And I think a center back partnership of Bocanegra and Pope would would make a difference, though I, I agree with Joe. I'm not sure this is going to be the team that wins the World Cup, so maybe we'll resort to some cheating and some sort of uh, angels in the outfield uh, situations to if we're going to keep blending in movies to make this happen. I see. Graham, have you saved the world? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> but I have picked five USMNT players from the past to help this current team at least try and save the world. Um, a lot of overlap in my selections, so... Uh, centre-backs, I'm taking Eddie Pope and I'm taking Bocanegra. I was between Bocanegra and uh, Gooch. I went for Bocanegra because he is left-footed, which Taylor mentioned there. So I think that there's a, there's a good partnership there. Um, striker, I have gone a slightly different route, but have picked a player that both Joe and Taylor have picked. So I'm going for 2014-era Clint Dempsey as my centre-forward. Mm. And obviously centre-forward wasn't his favoured position over the course of his career but he played up front at a World Cup where the US did pretty well and his scoring record in terms of goals per minute is still the best in USMNT history so Dempsey makes my team I don't want to mess with the wide forwards too much because I actually think this team is pretty strong in those areas despite what happened over the last week and um, so Dempsey I'm adding him to my uh, to, as, as my centre forward and you can maybe have some fluidity there with Pulisic or Weah or whoever it is kind of dropping into the middle exploiting that space uh, midfielder I've gone for uh, Claudio Reina because creativity has been a bit of a problem for the US under Berhalter and I, I like Reina's game and that he can control a match he can pick a pass through a defensive block and maybe even shoot from distance from time to time so I'm dropping him into my midfield and then the one pick that I do have that I don't think anyone's mentioned yet is I'm taking a goalkeeper. Despite the fact I feel okay about Matt Turner, but it's just because the US has such good options going back through history there. So I'm taking Tim Howard to be my mm -hmm. goalkeeper. I think he has an upgrade on Matt Turner. So my five are Eddie Pope, Bocanegra, Tim Howard, Dempsey and Claudio Reyna. Uh, a question for Reyna. Does he get to play with his son? Is his son fit long enough to do so? Sorry. Um. Yeah, why not? I mean, this is this feels like it's not going to happen and it's not going to get tested at any time. So yeah, let's let's say yes. I'd like that. Like the Good Johnsons did that, didn't they? Many yeah. many a minute ago. I think jo Joe said it. He just has to make sure he donates the the right hamstring this time, the correct hamstring, I should say. Maybe that was the mistake. It was uh, who's on first sort of situation. Joe gave him <laughs> his actual right hamstring, not the good hamstring, and that's why we have the problem. Yeah, I was wondering why you guys picked my bad hamstring, but I I didn't correct you. I guess. <laughs> You were just keeping That's the good one for the World Cup, though. Yeah. Right. Attaboy, Joe. Right. It's all about timing. <laughs> Think how many hamstrings Michael Sheen's got up his sleeve, though. That's what you've got to worry about. All right. Thank you, Alan, for the question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, more listener questions. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. What's the frequency? Kenneth Seiden has got in touch with us. Hey, Kenneth, who has asked which country that has never hosted a World Cup would you love to see get to host? Uh, Graham, I'm going to kick off straight off the bat with uh, my chosen country. It's Iceland. Um, not because well, they are a very great soccer nation, particularly in recent years. They've got great fans there. But mainly because, on average, Iceland's weather in summer is between 50 and 59 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that in centigrade, Graham, is very cold. Um, my seat is Scottish. <laughs> I think we're a little bit warmer than that. But yes, I take your point. That is uh, kind of the flip scenario of what Qatar is. Yeah, so who, who, who are you thinking, Graham? So how, how realistic are we talking here? Because I've got some realistic options and you've just gone straight in with Iceland. So I feel like we're, we're maybe not realistically awarding uh, FIFA World Cups out here because my realistic one is probably Australia. So they are co-hosting yeah. the Women's World Cup with New Zealand next year. And I'm looking forward to that. But Australia, they've, they've tried a couple times for the Men's World Cup and haven't hosted it yet. And there's some great stadiums in Sydney and Melbourne and Perth and obviously great cities as well. I've never been to Australia, but so many Scots go over there because it's vibrant and there's good weather and it's basically everything that Scotland isn't. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty cool thinking ab- ab- about what a World Cup could do for the soccer landscape in that country. Um, but part of the part of the problem with thinking of countries that haven't hosted a World Cup before is that FIFA have, have made the tournament so big that there's only a few that could actually do it. So my only other realistic option would be uh, China, I guess. I'm not, I don't know if I've got much enthusiasm for a Chinese World Cup, but I'm surprised it hasn't happened after the 2008 Olympics. Um, and then my unrealistic suggestion would be I'd love a similar vibes to you, Ryan, but I actually haven't included this country in my selection, but I'd love a Nordic World Cup. So Sweden has already hosted the, the World Cup in 1958, which is where you have that that famous Pele final. But I'd love to see Norway and Denmark and Finland. And let's have the Faroe Islands involved there as well. There's actually a fairly modern stadium in the Faroe Islands now. But back in the day, they used to play in this pitch that was basically just a, a, a pitch on a hillside. There was a hill on one side and then it was the ocean, the harbour on the other side. And it was, it was amazing. And I want that at the World Cup. I want that stadium at a World Cup. So yeah. I'll have a, a Nordic World Cup, please. I love that. Norway is a wonderful, wonderful country as well. I'd love to see a World Cup there. Although, Graham, I went many, I went about 12 years ago and a Big Mac was the equivalent of about $11, just the burger. So um, I That's don't know cheap how, in the UK. Yeah, I mean, your, your pound sterling isn't going to go far in Norway. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, Taylor, where have you landed on this one? Uh, I like your nominations so far. I, I I think I took a more realistic route, at least to me. Uh, my two nominations were the Netherlands. Uh, I think yep. you get the same small country uh, effect as you do with Qatar, but with the actual infrastructure and history behind it. Um, I think Portugal could be really interesting, yep. but I think Portugal would have to be partnered with like Portugal, Spain, Morocco, and Spain has already hosted one. Still, I think that could be really cool. I like that Joe is uh, is doubling down on some of these. That also makes me happy. Uh, and then I think uh, going to South America, Colombia. Uh, they were supposed to host in 1986. They were forced to withdraw due to an earthquake and other things as well, allegedly. Uh, so it would be nice to get another tournament in South America. And I think there would be great culture, great atmosphere, music, food, dance, all that good stuff uh, in a country... That 
where the the football obviously matters quite a bit, and Colombia would get to be there, so they would qualify automatically. Uh, This might be influenced by me answering this question while watching Colombia come back to beat Mexico last night. (laughs) Wonderful stuff. Uh, Joe, the Republic of Arizona is never uh, hosted. (laughs) Yeah, um, that's top of my list, Ryan. I'm not really sure how, how you knew that, but it totally is. No, Taylor took all of my answers, all three of them, because uh, I I think oh, the wow. Netherlands would be Sorry, very, Jeff. very cool. And Portugal is a beautiful country that I've not had the pleasure to visit before, and I would very much like to. So Portugal, Spain, they've worked together for bids before. So I think that that is actually feasible. And then same with sort of a, I don't know that Colombia would be able to do it on their own, Taylor, but sort of a, a cross South American kind of bid. There have been, in, in the past, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, and Paraguay have worked together. And I think they are... I believe they have a bid being prepared or or has already been prepared for a future Men's World Cup. So there could actually be something there. Colombia is not really in that list, but there absolutely could be something. Another area I'm interested in that I, I didn't actually pull out specifics because there's so many options, but it's for the Women's World Cup. Because, Graham, you mentioned Australia. The Women's World Cup will be in Australia next year, Australia, New Zealand in 2023. So next summer, this upcoming summer, there will be a World Cup in Australia, which I think is going to be very, very cool. In the past, there's only been, I don't know, six, seven, eight countries that have hosted the Women's World Cup. China, Sweden, the U.S., Germany, Canada, France, and then Australia and New Zealand. So there's lots of room for that tournament to be hosted in, in a bunch of different places. So I certainly have my eye on on that as well over the next, well, I will, at least over the next decade yeah. or so to see where that tournament ends up as well. For, for the Men's World Cup, you need 16 stadiums and 16 big stadiums. So for... for the US, Canada, and Mexico, obviously that isn't a problem. But that's why, Taylor, you mentioned the Netherlands. I think a Dutch World Cup would be fantastic. I love I love Holland. I love their football scene and I love the cities there. But six, 16 stadiums, I'm not even sure they have a stadium that can host a final because what what is the what does the the Johan Cruyff arena hold? It needs to be eighty thousand. I think it might be a little bit short of eighty thousand, but yeah, that 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 makes it so difficult to pick realistic host nations without kind of combining nations, just because the tournament's going to get so big. Wow, I didn't realize it was that uh, that capacity was required. That's fascinating. All right, then in that case, Graham, I've got another one uh, that would be somewhat more controversial, but I think could be interesting if we truly are seeing the World Cup as an opportunity to sort of bridge divides, political or historical or otherwise, what if we did a united Greece-Turkey World Cup where we put two countries that historically not the best of friends and we let them co-host it together? There you could get some pretty big stadia and some pretty amazing culture and atmosphere along the Mediterranean. Why not? What could go wrong? I think that's a great idea, Taylor, but I think it realistically wouldn't happen for the same reasons that Portugal wouldn't in the current economic climate because FIFA, I don't think, would pick uh, European or EU nations that don't have a lot of money. Um, or would they go the other way? And it's Wild West where you can print your own money if you're FIFA. Why not go that way? <laughs> Indeed. Or maybe FIFA just makes its own little country in the Atlantic somewhere. FIFA town. They can sell all don't, the bubbles they like. give them ideas. We have talked about this before. <laughs> Things that we think are ridiculously supervillain, they tend to do. Please don't give them this idea because they will do it and they will almost mm. certainly build it on a volcano because that's what they have to do. Where's that floating trash island? They could build it on that maybe. Yeah. One other suggestion. That's, that's, that's where Johnny Infantino deserves to reside. Yeah, sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, one other I'll, I'll add into the into the mix. A slightly uh, controversial decision. I'm going to suggest the world's smallest city state, just down the street from me, the Vatican City, as a host. 
Um, it's okay. It's 0.2 square miles of What's land. St. Peter's capacity. Let me check that real quick. So, so here's my here's my logic. St. Peter's the 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 uh, area just outside the basilica, St. Peter's Basilica, is big enough, I believe, for two fields. So you can have two simultaneous group stage games happening. This could be a 48 team World Cup. You just have to, you know be very generous with the timings of the games <laughs> and to have everybody play, everybody staying in Rome. Chaos, chaos, chaos. That's it for me, Taylor. Yes, thank you. St. Peter's can hold 60,000 people standing. Oh. Okay, then. All right. Now I'm in, Ryan. I, that's, still not, that's still not quite enough, but we can make it work. We can make it work. You've uh, got to fit not two sure fields in there, though. <laughs> oh, now we're running into some problems. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, histori- never mind. I'm not going to get into Crusades jokes. <laughs> Let's just keep it moving. <laughs> Let's keep it moving, indeed. Kenneth, thank you for the question, as always. Kevin LaFollette has been in touch now. Why is a rivalry game called a derby? And why is it mispronounced by the English? Um, Let's start off with the pronunciation. This is, of course, how Derby County would pronounce the name Derby. Now, I believe this is... uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, any of you gents, that it's like an origin of Old English thing in terms of the pronunciation of the ER sound. Like, Berkeley, we would... Berkeley, the university, we would say Berkeley. And the, the movie, the Kevin Smith movie, Clerks, the English would say Clarks. So I think mm-hmm. it's the same reasoning, Taylor. Does that make sense? Do you say answer as well, or do you say answer? Well, that's at the end. That's a suffix on the end of the word, darling. Ah, uh, of course, of course, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, <laughs> accents are accents. You got to pronounce things how you do. Uh, it is one of those ones that I still get the head tilt from people when I say Derby. And occasionally we'll get the, do you mean Derby? Is that the word you're saying, like Derby hat? But yeah, I guess... Darby works. Uh, Historically, there are, what, two theoretical explanations, one of which I can explain fairly succinctly. The Darby Stakes Race, uh, established by the 12th Earl of Darby in 1780. That seems to be mostly just that it's like a sporting competition with the word Darby in it, so people assume that that's where it comes from. But then there's another one that involves fighting in a whole town and thousands of people in a semi-round, semi-oblong ball thrown into a crowd by uh, what appears to be several geriatric old men, if the recent uh, iteration is any indicator. Indeed. Maybe actually the origin of the term was from Terence Trent Derby, Taylor. Is that where it comes from? <laughs> I think it must be. A lot, lot of topical mu- mu- musical references uh, from you today, Ryan. That's... <laughs> uh, w- would somebody please try to explain the Royal Shrovetide football match to me it. and, and its uh, connection to Derby? Thank you, Joe. I got it in as much as you and Daryl talked about it on Soccer 101, which is where I did ah, all yes. of my research for this question. So, Kevin, if you're not satisfied with how we approach the answer to this question, I would go back. It was, I believe, back in 2019, but it's not that much scrolling in the Soccer 101 feed, and you'll find the exact answer to this question and, and have a, a wonderful time, truly, as I did listening to that episode. But basically, the idea is that it's played during Holy Week in the town of Ashburn in Derbyshire, England, or, sorry, Derbyshire, England. My mistake. I forgot about the old English pronunciation. Um, it started out... Go on. It's, okay, whatever. It started out in the 12th century. Um, <laughs> and basically, the goals are really far apart, and they're uh, on, on sort of the end of a town, and the team pushes the ball towards the goal, there's a couple different rules here that Taylor, you and Daryl brought out on the show. No murder, I guess, which is, yeah, that's probably good. Um, and then that's a law, I, I mean, think, not a rule. It has, Do it's we know a lot, that that fair. has been has that been codified in the IFAB laws? I guess like violent conduct would probably cover that one. But I want to make sure that no baby. murder is in the laws. Yeah. Um, so no murder, and then uh, I believe the action has to stop at 10 p.m. 
So again, I guess bad things happen after dark. I'm not really sure what the logic is there. Either way, everybody's at home, in bed, tucked in by (laughs) 10.05. No murdering before or after 10 p.m. And the idea is that this can be played over multiple different days, sort of cricket-esque in that way. And you're trying to get the ball in the goal across town, and that's sort of the original idea behind the Royal Shrove Tide football, which was played in, sorry, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, Derbyshire? Derbyshire? Shit. Like all right, the we're done. Derbyshire. That's all I got. <laughs> I can't do it. Can't Thank get you, it. You're welcome. Th- that, that was excellent. Thank you very much, Joe. Graham, anything to add on this one? Just that this match in Derbyshire sounds very much like the old firm. I th- I th- it feels yeah. like uh haven't really evolved beyond that point up here in Scotland. Yeah, I think, by the way, the 10pm rule, I'm assuming that's so everybody, after trying to kill each other, can get home on public transport together. <laughs> Maybe that's it. We will... Uh, yeah. We'll yeah, there's got to be some considerations in there for logistics. Yeah, but it is odd. And there's, by the way, there's plenty of derbies happening this weekend. We've got the North London derby, as we record, coming up this weekend. We've got another London derby, I believe, Palace are playing Chelsea. We've got the East Midlands derby, Leicester versus Nottingham Forest. Derby's coming out our ears. Uh, weekend review will be great next Monday, I can guarantee. Manchester, I think. As Manchester well. derby, I forgot about that one. United, uh, City hosting United on Sunday as well. You're quite right, Graham. There's loads of them. Um, very good weekend coming up. Welcome back, Premier League. We missed you very much. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back more questions looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard it right you can talk to a real human in customer service anytime sounds like a real game changer if you ask me Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Frank Clark has got in touch. Uh, presumably not the 79-year-old former Nottingham Forest manager, Frank Clark, but it might be. If so, hello, Frank. Uh, what national teams would win a Champions League-style <laughs> tournament if the men's teams played the first leg and the women's teams played the second leg? Uh, Taylor, a bit of housekeeping on this question from yeah, me. Yeah, please. Do we think we count the group stage in this? And if so, do like, the men play oh. the home and then the women play the away? Or are we just going straight to knockout stage on this one? I mean, I was going a step further back. Like, national teams playing in the Champions League threw me for a moment. Are we, are we, are they getting time to train the way a club would? Are they playing against other clubs or are they playing against other hybrid national teams? Which one do we think? I think, I think it's just Champions teams. League style tournament is all yeah. it means. So it just means the structure, right? Okay, so if we're going structure, then I think we're going group stage and then into the knockout round, which means you need uh, plenty of depth in your team, you need some variety in your attack, and you need, I think, quality throughout. I think there are three uh, nominees, though I think one of them is in a bit of a situation right now. Starting with that one, uh, Spain, uh, pretty solid on both sides, except uh, I believe I'm correct in saying that there is currently a dispute between the Spanish women's national team and the Spanish FA. That's putting it lightly. 
I, yeah, I think many, many players have threatened retirement or have outright retired until things are changed. So maybe that wouldn't be the strongest one right now. But uh, generally speaking, I think that would be a good team. And then the two that I think would probably end up contesting the final as long as they avoided each other in the uh, the knockout round would be Germany and France. Just both very good, comprehensively good at that, have tons of strength, have tons of variety to the way they want to play, and that's both for the men's and women's teams. Um, so I think uh, it would be Germany, France in the final. I lean Germany in that contest, but you never know. You never know. Uh, Graham, Taylor wasn't brave enough to say England. Are you? <laughs> uh, no. No, they are They are actually on my list. So my, my list is... So basically, I want nations that are obviously both strong in the women's game and and the men's game. So though the US are the dominant force in women's soccer, uh, that is not currently the case for the men's team. What, Graham, at least not well, until Graham, we know it. You don't have to say it. <laughs> yeah, at least not until Berhalter stops uh, picking iron long. Am I right? Um, but yeah, they are not on my list. I think. Um, England are on my list, although maybe the men's team is letting them down at the moment, being a Group B team and all that. <laughs> all right, so my you other sounds, candidates, you sound so comfortable answering this question, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's my general vibe. Uncomfortable. <laughs> um, so yeah, Spain. Uh, Spain would have been my pick if there wasn't the whole Jorge Vilda situation going on right now with 15 players writing an open letter demanding the resignation of him as the head coach. I think in terms of the, the profile of the of the teams on both the men's and the women's um, side, I would go for Spain. I just don't have the confidence that the, the, the French women's team are defensively great, although brilliant in an attacking sense. Um, so Spain, France, Germany... I guess, would be my picks as well. Were they the same three as you, Taylor? That was a lot of talking to get to the same conclusion, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. All right, fair enough. And a little bit of disharmony in the French women's camp still. Am I correct, Graham? Indeed, yes. Yeah. Uh, Corinne Diacre is a controversial head coach and it feels like on the men's team as well, on the men's side, they they are... Always on the cusp of mutiny as well. So I don't know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a French trait. All right, Joe, where did you land on this one? And is there any importance in the men playing the first leg and the women the second in in the sense that the women might have some recovery to do from the men's results, potentially? That was the only reason how I could talk myself into putting the U.S. on this list. And and maybe it shouldn't matter. Maybe it's a psychological thing. But I I have in my notes, E-N-G for England, G-E-R, Germany, F-R-A, France, U-S-A, parentheses, women saving it, close parentheses. That's it. That's all I have in my notes for this question. Um, everything that, that needs to be said has already been said. But Ryan, to answer your specific question, yeah, maybe at least I feel better about having the U.S. women come in to clean up the, the mess that the men may have made uh, in this particular competition than I would maybe if it was the other way around. Would, would you not want them to build up such a big league, a lead, sorry, in, in the first leg that the men could just sit back and basically did what Scotland did against Ukraine last night and just play for the draw back to maybe, the walls. Maybe, Graham, and maybe it would be better to have the, the the women go first because that game could be a little more open. And we've seen the U.S. women's national team struggle to break down a, a defensive block as well. I'm getting deep in the tactical weeds here. There's a chance that, that maybe the other way around actually would be better. I, I did sort of imagine the women just digging the U.S. out of the hole, which feels right, but maybe in an act actuality it wouldn't be right i don't know either way I'm, I'm afraid we won't probably get to test this theory anytime soon all right let's get a, a champion pick from each of you then i will go with germany just because you know strong on both sides uh, and it's a tournament and that's what germany does taylor what, what would be your champion overall yep i had germany as yep. well okay graham 
Uh, yeah, I think Germany. <laughs> oh, can, can I also say, I, a lot of that is because I was thinking about this last night, again, in relation to the United States. I feel like Hansi Flick is going to be, or already is, a very good international manager, and I can't shake the feeling that Germany are going to go very far in this next World Cup. Not just because of him, but he will be a big reason for it. So I think between the German uh, women's team we saw at the Euros and a Hansi Flick-led Germany team, that will now almost inevitably crash out in the group stage because I've said this, and I have those powers. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Germany, uh, for, for sure, and I like Hansi Flick a lot. Oh, I'm not sure they're super confident going into this World Cup, Tater. Certainly not after that game at Wembley, I would suggest as well. Uh, but that's, as I mentioned at the top of the show, that is the case for many, many teams at this tournament. So we shall see. It is a leveler at the moment. Joe, do, who was your, your um, t- comprehensive pick for the, uh, the champion here? Yeah, I'll go Germany too. I don't feel great about the men's team right now. They've only won one of their last seven games. But I, I think between the quality they have on both sides of this program and the fact that they're not England, that's, that's sort of why I have them winning this thing. Ouch, my pride. Thanks very much, Joe. <laughs> and thank you, Clark, Clark for, uh, Frank Clark, for the question. Excuse me. Let's get one in from Corey H. Where does Luis, Luis Suarez rank among the greatest strikers in Premier League history? Hmm. So Luis Suarez is obviously quite a decorated player. League title in Holland. He got five in Spain uh, and with two different teams. Um, he won a Copa America, of course. No Premier League title with Liverpool, one might add. But two European golden shoes, Eredivisie golden boot, a Premier League golden boot, the Pachichi, the Spanish golden boot. Uh, and he scored over 500 career goals for club and country. Uh, Graham, obviously a very talented player and one mm-hmm. who has had many special moments on the field, but also some very bad moments. Not so special moments. Mm. Yeah, so I've, I've tried to sort of discount that stuff from my ranking, if that's at all possible, and just kind of look on the football side of things. So for me, the greatest striker in Premier League history um, is or was Thierry Henry. Um, I think for me, that is undisputed in my opinion behind him I've got Alan Shearer as number two so I've actually come up with a with a rankings to try and figure out where I would where I'd place Luis Suarez so number one Thierry Henry number two Alan Shearer I'd have Wayne Rooney as my number three then I'd have Sergio Aguero and then Cantona so that's my top five I've got number six Harry Kane number seven Dennis Bergkamp even though he didn't mean it and then by the time (laughs) I get to my number eight, that's when I'm starting to consider Luis Suarez. So I, I think he's in the discussion around that stage of my rankings alongside Drogba, Van Nistelrooy, and probably Robin Van Persie. I think he maybe edges it ahead of those other two. The thing that counts against Suarez as well, you know, the racism and the biting and all that, but as I say, I'm trying to put that to one side. The thing that counts against him is that he was only in the Premier League for three years. So had he stayed longer, then he probably jumps up into my top five. But other players showed it in the Premier League over a longer period of time. So I mark him down for that. But his record of 6-9 goals and 110 games was incredible. And he, and he might have been even higher in my rankings had Liverpool won that title in 2014, which Suarez basically dragged them to within touching distance of. Mm. But yeah, I think I've got him as number eight. Still remember him crying on the field at Crystal Palace. Was it a 3-3 draw that kind of... Let yeah, and they were 3-0 up. Yeah. This doesn't nice. slip. This does not slip. I'll, I'll let you have um, Eric Cantona as a striker. Am I going to let you have Dennis Bergkamp as a striker, Graham? Yeah, of course. He was He was like uh, one well, half of the front two, wasn't he? 
War number ten, I think. Yeah, that's a striker. I mean, I know tens can be creators, but we're not we're not having him as like a Maradona type, are we? He's a he's a striker. All right, second striker, striker. Tomato, tomato. All right, I'll let you have that. Very good. Um, <laughs> Joe, what, what do you think about Luis Suarez? Yeah, I have him sort of on the the cusps of the top ten, right? Sort of on the edge of that. I didn't build out my entire list, but a few names I had down that are either ahead or or very much right next to Luis Suarez. Alan Shearer, Wayne Rooney, Harry Kane, Sergio Aguero, Thierry Henry, and Didier Drogba. So that that at least pushes Suarez out of the top five. I agree with Graham. He wasn't obviously a Premier League lifer. He only had about three and a half seasons there, as Graham said. Had a couple of phenomenal years, but I mean, one and a half seasons as well where he wasn't banging in goals left and right. He had 23 goals, Premier League goals in the 2013, 2012-13 season, excuse me, and then 31 Premier League goals in the 13-14 season. Clearly an, an incredibly good striker in the Premier League, but there have also been a lot of other incredibly good strikers in the Premier League that were in the Premier League for longer. And, and between that or just better goal-scoring records are probably above Luis Suarez in these rankings. Taylor, um, we meant, I mentioned at the top there that you know um, he was charged with racially abusing Patrice Evra. He's been known to bite some people. He uh, had that famous uh, handball at the World Cup uh, in 2010 as well. Obviously, a lot of those incidents didn't take place in the Premier League, but it does it does um, influence the decision a little bit, doesn't it? You mean this decision? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, especially the ones that occurred in the Premier League, because I, I guess being a literalist, I, I think a lot of the achievements that you listed there, I think only one or two of them, Ryan, were actually in the Premier League. Yep. Most of them were in the Netherlands or international or with Barcelona. And that's why I, I had him pretty pretty far down, honestly, like much lower than I think Graham uh, and Joe. And there's probably some bias in there as well as a Manchester United fan. But I, I think sticking with that for a moment, like Wayne Rooney, I would put higher when we're talking about just the Premier League. Yep. I would say Dwight York scored more goals. Like I think there's plenty of strikers who did more in the Premier League, certainly won more silverware, which isn't, again, meant as a shot because obviously Liverpool now doing just fine winning their own silverware. Uh, but I think Suarez, if we're having this conversation about where does he rank in terms of like all-time great strikers, is that does move him up the list for me. But when we're talking about just the Premier League, I think his achievements there get overshadowed because the present Liverpool team is so good and has had so much success. I think what will end up happening is like 10 years from now, people will like sort of merge those things and it will be remembered as like, oh yeah, he played like the first couple seasons under Klopp, I think, and helped them be really good. Like we'll get that sort of, uh, what's that, the, the Mandela effect sort of thing with Luis Suarez eventually down the road. But for now, until that happens, I think properly remembering him as a very good striker who had uh, better achievements outside of the Premier League is probably fair. When, when benchmarking him against other players, I don't think anyone's mentioned someone like Harry Kane. Are we putting disrespect on... Yeah, no, Joe Graham did. and I both you mentioned did, Harry did? Kane, okay. and we and we both yeah. mentioned Wayne Rooney when, when Taylor brought Wayne right. Rooney into the conversation as well. Okay, I didn't want to have any disrespect on uh, active players uh, in, in this debate. Um, what are the chances in this ranking, let's say in 10 years, 15 years' time, that Erling Haaland tops it? What do you think, Joe? Uh, not zero. Like, really not zero. I think... I don't know if Erling Haaland will be in the Premier League for that entire time. The Premier League has sort of entrenched itself as the best league in the world right now. And so maybe that helps him if Erling Haaland is trying to stay at the top of his game. If he's still around in a decade or or maybe even less than that at this rate. Yeah, I mean, it's not a ridiculous conversation to be having, Ryan. And I have a, I have a question about that. Sorry, go ahead, Graham. I was just going to say, in my football manager sim, Erling Haaland becomes the all-time top scorer in the Premier League after four seasons. <laughs> All right, I, which feels 
possible. Um, I, I have a question, though, like because this is just maybe just a me thing. I think for a lot of the players we're talking about, there has to be maybe an early connection to the Premier League. Like I think when you look at... Alan Shearer or Harry Kane or Wayne Rooney. Has anyone mentioned Wayne Rooney yet? Uh, Kidding. Uh, But I think it's players that have been there for, like, not even from the beginning necessarily, but you just equate them with England from a relatively young age. And Holland, still young, obviously, but I, I think, like, for at least right now, is more of a is it more of a German like a Dortmund uh, Bundesliga striker? Uh, so I, I do wonder if that like hurts the way we understand him, or if the time, his time at Dortmund fades really quickly because he will end up breaking the goal scoring record in like a season and a half. There's a whole load. See, when you look at the Premier League all time scorers list, there's a whole load of players that we haven't mentioned that. Maybe like Andy, Andy Cole, 187 yeah. goals. Robbie Fowler's up there. Jermaine Defoe, 162 goals. Michael Owen. Yakubu's got 95 goals in the Premier League. Adebayor's got 97. Yeah. Some of Berbatov, 94. That's surprising to me that he scored that many. Uh, the greatest goal scorer in history, you mean to say? <laughs> Certainly the suavest. I love that man so much. <laughs> I just picture him with a cigarette in his mouth while scoring all goals. I don't know why. Just. More romantic that way, I suppose. Uh, thank you, Corey, for that question. I think the TLDR on Luis Suarez's ranking among the Premier League greats is he's kind of up there. I guess that's the uh, the answer we've reached in consensus. Thank you, everybody, for all your questions. And if you have any, totalsoccershow.com slash questions, please send them in to us. We do love to receive them. But before we go, a little bit of bonus uh, content here for you. Mason van der See has got a bonus non-soccer question for us all, uh, asking about the college football season, which has started a few weeks ago. Uh, he'd like to know if uh, me, Ryan, picked up a favourite team while living in the States, and if any other co-hosts have strong allegiances to a college football team. Uh, I'll Taylor, are you a, are you a college boy? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I feel like I feel like you just answered the question but as a resounding no with the way you oh phrased that gosh. question to me. College boy, eh? College Ryan, boy. Ryan, you uh, make you yeah. make my days better. Oh my gosh, that was so good. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, I was a place kicker for two years of college, but the answer is no. I never really got that into college football. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think I really root for any team more than any other one. It's always interesting, but never like really my, so, my chief sport. So to me, college football or co- college sports in general, but you tend to see college football on Twitter, and I think maybe some of it's on British TV. It's the most alien thing to me because not only <laughs> is it a, a sport that I. I didn't grow up with, so I do watch a bit of NFL. I'm a fair weather NFL fan. I watch the playoffs and the Super Bowl. I've just a, just about come round to NFL and understanding that. So it's a sport that initially is already kind of alien to me, and then just like the whole culture around college sports, it's it's just Ryan. You'll back me up on this. It's just a thing that doesn't exist in the UK. Like university sports are rubbish in the UK and do not have a hundred thousand seater stadiums and big multi million pound programs and everything like that. It's it's completely alien to me and I feel very much out of my depth whenever I see it on social media or on the TV. Yeah, I'll say I played for my college soccer team, uh, and soccer being the predominant sport in the UK where I went to college, and uh, maybe one person and their dog would watch us play. Yeah, not not a stadium full of uh, hundred thousand people. So yeah, very different experience. Joe, you are. College boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do enjoy college sports, and I don't watch as much college football as I used to, but 
I am a, a casual University of Arizona fan down in Tucson. My family has connections mm-hmm. to, as in my, parts of my family have attended the University of Arizona. The way I phrased that made it sound like we owned the school, which is very much not true. Um, but U of A is terrible at football so and have been, have been for as long as I can remember. There have been times, that I guess they weren't so bad, but right now they're, they're pretty dreadful. So I don't watch them a ton. I'm a bit of a Fairweather fan. But yeah, I would say casual fan of the University of Arizona. I will say I uh, I am quite a big college football fan. I certainly did become in the past sort of five or six years or so. Uh, some of my good friends in uh, Charlotte were uh, Carolina Gamecocks fans who were down in Columbia, South Carolina. It's about 45 miles away or so. Um, I've even watched a Gamecocks game uh, this season. Um, the one that was on Big Boy ESPN uh, got blown out by Georgia a couple of weeks ago. And Graham, I'll say the stadium experience for college football is absolutely wild like uh, the Gamecocks play uh, at um, Williams Bryce Stadium which has got 77,000 seats in it but it's all about the tailgate so you get there like five or six hours early the guys I go with they have their SUV they have beer taps in there they bring their satellite TV they've got cornhole going which uh, I know Joe's favorite pastime Uh yeah there you go and it's this weird mix of like um, former students like people in the 30s and 40s um, local fans who have no academic affiliation with the college and then just kids running around the place it's this very strange mix of sort of um white claws and pale ales <laughs> just sense. just drinking then basically yeah 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 and you have to do all your drinking before you go into the stadium because they don't sell uh, booze in the uh, college that's like uh, scottish football yeah very much like that and yeah. see uh see game just one more time game so the um <laughs> the stadium, Graham, will split into two. One side will go, game! The other side goes, cox! No, they don't. Please tell me that isn't what happens. You you know which side of the stadium I prefer to be on. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> there we go. I'm laughing at Joe's running counter of the number of times that Ryan has said that word now. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> what is the count, Joe? We're at five so far. Check the Slack, people. I've been doing. I've been doing some hard work here. I have um, a, a baseball cap which has Cox written on it, Graham. I'm very proud to wear it Six. and confuse people. <laughs> Please wear that to the live show. I will. I'll bring it. You're very welcome. Uh, one more bonus question we have for you, Graham. I think this is something we brought up before. This is from Jesse Lee, who says he hears that Scottish people can't say "purple burglar alarm." Have at it, oh, Graham. Dear. Purple burglar <laughs> Purple, right, I'll try and do it seriously. Purple burglar alarm. It is difficult. Other words that Scottish people can't say include vocabulary, vocabulary jewellery, and poem. Wow. Poem. Poem? Poem? What? Poem. Po- poem? poem. Oh, like right. poetry. Poem. And- yeah, like poetry. Poetry is easier to say than poem. All right. That, <laughs> wow. Po- poem. Okay, so oh, that's interesting. I, also, I'll get the check. Isn't that one of the Scottish ones that you struggle with? Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> just, just you be quiet there, Group B boy. <laughs> Touche. On that note, thank you very much, listeners, for sticking with us in this one. Graham Rutherford, thank you so much. Enjoy. Oh, thank you, right? Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always. Pleasure was mine, Group B boy. Joe Lowry, let's go, Cox. <laughs> Seven. Let's get out of here. Listener, thank you so much. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. bye.